Uh, well, hi. Uh, my name's Josa, and I'm a member of the Christian Union here at Yomi Way. Uh, whether you're here because you've seen uh, the information for the talks on a poster around campus, because uh, a friend invited you and you decided to come along, or because you've already been with us for a while investigating Jesus and you had a question or two you wanted answered, um, welcome. We're so glad that you're here and that you're ready to hear more. Uh, today's talk is the third in a series of five talks held by the Christian Union over weeks four and five, answering some of the bigger questions that people might have about God and Christianity. Uh, today we're hearing from Professor Andrew Page uh, on why the good life won't satisfy. There'll be some time for questions at the end, so if you think of questions um, while you're listening, then uh, can I suggest that you write them down so that you don't forget them by the time you get to the end, and that way you can ask them. Uh, to introduce our speaker a little bit, Andrew is a professor of psychological science here at the uni and has done a lot of work and research into mental health. Uh, so Andrew, would you like to come? We might get to know you a little bit. Uh, so, what does a normal day look like for you? Normal day um, on the week just looks like coming to work, going home, coming to work, eat, sleep, repeat. Um, on a weekend, that might give you more of an idea. On the weekend, I like to get up early and go for a nice long ride with a group of friends. Um, come home early, have a big cooked breakfast to try to consume as many calories as I've just eaten up in a four and a half hour ride and then sit down um, with whichever children are around at home doing the Times cryptic crossword um, and that's only tipped off by having my wife at the table because she hates crosswords so I like explaining the clever clues and she just goes why do you do that and that just makes it even more fun. Uh, so did you grow up in Perth? Now I was born in the United Kingdom, um, moved to Australia when I was 13, grew up in on the other side of the East Coast in Sydney, did my study there, worked there, and then a long time ago, house prices were really expensive in Sydney and really cheap in Perth, so we came to Perth. Right, so other than house prices, what's one thing you love about living here? <laughs> what, one, one thing I love about living in Perth um, is the Perth Bell Tower, right? Just stay, stay with me, mate. Because if you look at any of the Perth, any of the Perth, um, um, the um, sort of Perth tourist stuff of of the bell tower, it's always taken with a camera right down here. So it looks like this huge tower that's just magnificent against um, the um, against the Perth skyline. And I think that's how we like to present ourselves to the rest of the world: magnificent. <laughs> big and grand, but in reality we're actually, oh, we had big ideas, but it was like, oh, let's be a bit more sensible, we don't want to destroy it, and, and uh, so we just, so we're actually much more um, sort of down to earth, just reasonable, even though we like to present ourselves. So that's what I like about <laughs> we're, we're really down to earth. Um, and so you're here to talk to us about the good life and why it won't satisfy. When was that sort of like, when did that become real to you as a question? Mm. Well, interestingly, it started to become real to me because as somebody doing research in mental health, in, and in particular the prediction and prevention of um, suicide, um, some people, especially Christians, would say, oh, you must understand about happiness and the good life. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, no. <laughs> I'm always thinking about what's so bad about life. And so that was when I started looking at, actually... There are some really good things in life as well. 
Um, and actually, there's a confluence with our research about suicide, but I'm not going to talk about that right, today. Well, over to you. Thank you. All right. So, some of the some of um, um, the references are here. If you want, you can get hold of those. That's if you want to look up any of the information in more detail after um, after this talk. But there are no questions in the exam, so don't worry. <laughs> Relax um, and try to take it in. And I suppose I want to make clear that what? Not yeah. Is that up? Is that better? Yeah. Oh, that's a lot better. How's that? Chuck. Good. Um, yeah, so I suppose I want to make it clear that this is, that I'm a Christian giving a talk, I'm not a giving a Christian talk, per se. So I'll be talking about the, um, the, um, the psychological research, which will have a Christian perspective, but see, so see where we go. When you start by thinking to yourself, if you could live anywhere, where would you live? So, would you live in Perth? Would you live in Australia? Would you live in another country? And if you were there, what would you do? How would you live? If you had the choice to, to live the best life that you could, would you be studying at UWA? Of course you would. Of course you would. <laughs> but, other people have some other views, like, if you look here, one question you might think, what about Iceland? Probably not as good beaches, but Iceland apparently has no army, it has jailed their corrupt bankers, its economy is booming, its violent crime is rare, it's one of the lowest crime rates in the world, and it has an atheist majority population, which the Atheist Alliance indicates. This is why we should emulate Iceland or go to Iceland to live. And they have something, because if you look at the amount of, uh, these are um, um, these are the results of um, certain countries, within those countries, with countries that have more religious service, uh, with, more, with people going to more religious services, crime rates are higher. The, the fewer people who say religion is important in their daily lives are more likely to be happier. And the less religious live longer, or those in less religious nations live longer. What about wealth? If we look at wealth here, this one's just to show you can get any country that you want in there, but it's a bit hard to read. But as you can see, that as the wealth increases on this log scale, that um, satisfaction with life increases. This one's a bit e easier to see, but you can't see so many countries. And what you can see is as you move, move out of extreme poverty, there's this increase in satisfaction, which starts to plateau with all um, the wealthy nations the top in that plateauing. So, would you choose to live in a relatively wealthy nation, 
a secular nation? Would you choose to be a secular person in a secular wealthy nation? Will that make you happier? Will that be the good life? One thing about psychologists, so I'm assuming about a quarter of you will have done some psychology, because in 1101 we did about a quarter of the university, so probably all those people over here, and the other people over there. Just, but one of the things you'll learn about psychology is that psychologists are happy with uncertainty. People in computer science and engineering, they like certainty, it's good, they build bridges and make programs and don't fall over. Psychologists are quite happy with uncertainty. So if you end this talk with a sense of uncertainty, it'll be just what a psychologist is like, because we're quite happy with that and enjoy uncertainty. And because lots of it's about your frame of reference. And so one of the things I want to do is give you a lens for thinking about the research that you might need about happiness and, and what the good life is. Because it's a lot more complex. And when I started preparing this talk, I thought, ah, half hour, it'll be a piece of cake. Turned out to be a lot more complex than I realised. So I'll try to make the complexity simple to you. But before we get into that, first of the boring bit, we have to define our terms. I've used some of the terms already. But just, just to be clear, these terms come with specific meanings. When, when we're talking about satisfaction, people are talking about a cognitive evaluation or an appraisal of your life circumstances. So when I'm asking about your satisfaction, it's are you satisfied with your job? Are you satisfied with where you live? There's also an, um, another term which, is, which I've used, which is unhappiness. Happiness is more an emotional sense. So if I'm asking you, do you feel happy? It's an affective evaluation. You look, look inside and you go, yeah, you're sort of smiling, so that's happy. And then there's this other term, subjective well-being, which is within um, um, psychology is said that if you're talking about the good life, you at least need to be mindful of subjective well-being, which is, includes this concept of satisfaction and happiness. And it's important because satisfaction and happiness aren't always, aren't always the same thing. And so we know about happiness, so let's start with wealth. Because, and who better to speak to about wealth than the man himself? Um, Schwarzenegger, who says, money doesn't make you happy. I now have 50 million, but I was just as happy when I had 48 million. Ah, <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, is it about being wealthy? Because remember I showed you, um, 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 satisfaction. as wealth for nation increased, satisfaction increased. And that's important because if you ask students, students have changed. These are um, for the United States students. You can see in the 1960s, um, US college students said, 80% or more than 80% of them said, what was important was developing a meaningful philosophy in life. And only about 40 or 45% of them said, my aim is to be well off financially. But you can see around the mid-1970s, mid these things flipped over. And now, predominantly, people want more money and are less worried about developing a meaningful philosophy in life. So money seems to be important to at least US students. And money has increased 
over that time period. And what you can see in the United States is income has steadily increased. But when you ask about happiness, this is the percentage of people who are very happy, being completely flat. So people might be a bit more satisfied, but they're not happier. And so that's what I mean by you have, in this talk, you start to so see you need to be tolerant of answer because you'll be going, but is it this or that? And it's, yes, it's that and that. So it's, so it's getting a bit complex because if it gets more complex, let's go to physics because that makes it more complex. Now, what I want to talk, tell you is a sh um, short video about Simpson's paradox. If you're sort of a massy person, you'll look at this and go, it's cool. If you're not, you'll just go, ooh, numbers. Um, that, that's fine. All you have to remember is Simpson's paradox is what's true for the individual is not necessarily true for the, for the whole. So that's the substance of it. Let me, oops. We often evaluate the success of medical treatments or social programs by how much the population may help, but this can be a problem. Like, suppose we're treating a disease that afflicts both people and cats, and among one cat and four people we treat, the cat and one person recover and three people die. And of four cats and one person we don't treat, three of the cats recover while one cat and the person die. In the real world, these numbers might be more like 300 and 100 or whatever, but we'll keep them small so they're easier to keep track of. So in our sample, 100% of treated cats survive, while only 75% of untreated cats do, and 25% of treated humans survive, while 0% of untreated humans do, which makes it seem like the treatment improves chances of recovery, except that if we aggregate the data, among all people and cats treated, only 40% survive, while among all people and cats left on their own, 60% recover, which makes it seem like the treatment reduces the chances of recovery. So which is it? This is an illustration of Simpson's paradox, a statistical paradox where it's possible to draw two opposite conclusions from the same data depending on how you divide things up. And statistics alone can't help us solve it. We have to go outside statistics and understand the causality involved in the situation at hand. For example, if we know that humans get the disease more seriously and are therefore more likely to be prescribed treatment, then it can make sense that fewer individuals that get treated survive, even if the treatment increases the chances of recovery since the individuals that got treated were more likely to die in the first place. On the other hand, if we were to know that humans, regardless of how sick they are, are more likely to get treated than cats because no one wants to pay for kitty healthcare, then the fact that four out of five humans died while only one in five cats died suggests that indeed the treatment may be a bad choice. So if you're doing a controlled experiment, you need to make sure to not let anything causally related to the experiment influence who you apply your treatments to. And if you have an uncontrolled experiment, you have to be able to take those outside influences into account. As a more tangible example, Wisconsin has repeatedly had higher overall 8th grade standardized test scores than Texas. So you might think Wisconsin is doing a better job. However, when broken down by race, which by entrenched socioeconomic differences is a major factor in standardized test scores, Texas students performed better than Wisconsin students on all fronts. Black Texas students scored higher than black Wisconsin students, and likewise with Hispanic and white students. The difference in the overall ranking is because Wisconsin has proportionally far fewer black and Hispanic students and proportionally more white students than Texas. So the takeaway certainly shouldn't be that Wisconsin has better education than Texas. 
just that it has proportionally more socioeconomically advantaged students. So understanding the underlying causal context of statistics can have huge public implications. In some situations, there's also a nice graphical way to picture Simpson's paradox, as two separate trends that each go one way, but the overall trend between the populations goes the other way. Like, maybe more money makes people sadder, and more money makes cats sadder. But if cats are both much happier and richer than people to start with, the overall trend appears incorrectly to be that more money makes you happier. In this case, being a cat makes you happier, but also happens to correlate with having more money. And you could also misinterpret this graph to show that overall, more money makes you a cat. Which I think helps illustrate very well the ability to lie or reach incorrect conclusions by blindly using statistics without context. Of course, this is not to say that statistics are always going... So let's stop there. <laughs> So, just keep that as a frame of reference, that more money makes you a cat. No, no. That, that what's true for the individual might not be true for the whole. And that's an important frame of reference because you can get lots of confusing results and you can have large arguments and, um, which are always fun about this, but just because you're talking about different things. So let me give you a frame of reference. Let's say that Culture is to nations what personality is to individuals. Personality is what gives us our flavour, um, our colour, separates us off from one another, and similarly culture is that at our national level. And there are four, four ways that we can think about this that can apply, that you can think of these constructs similarly at the level of the individual and the broader culture. So, uh, cultures can be talked about as being as having an individualistic focus, or a or a collectivist one, where it's about supporting um, everybody, or is about pursuing your own interests. There is what's called um, the power distance, which is how much inequality there is within a um, social grouping or an individual level. How how willing are you to live in an environment? Where there is um, where there is inequality. Um, what's I, I think unhelpfully called um, masculinity, but it just is in the literature. This idea that masculinity is assertiveness, um, a toughness, a successful "I'm going to drive, succeed" mentality versus so-called um, femininity, which is a modesty, caring, harmony. Get social react, uh, social relationships working, and improve everybody's quality of life. And a final one, which is uncertainty avoidance. As an individual level, you're the sort of person who likes order and consistency, or you're quite happy with a mess, messed up bedroom. Um, at a at a cultural level, it's um, whether your um, society is neatly ordered or whether it's completely chaotic. You can make up your mind about what's happening internationally um, about that right now. So what happens at the national level? Steele and colleagues have done this really nice analysis where they put all of these things um, together. And I'll just summarise some main elements for you. We won't talk about all of them. We've got this concept of subjective well-being here. And what you can see is at the national level, Wealthy nations tend to have higher subjective well-being. As we saw, the more wealthy you are, the higher your satisfaction. And it's, it's a relatively strong relationship. 
that, um, interestingly, the more wealthy the nation, the more individualistic it tends to be. Individualism at the national level drives wealth and towards subjective well-being. So at a national level, individualism seems to be a good, um, a good thing to have. Masculinity, on the other hand, seems to inhibit your, um, uh, your subjective well-being at the national level. So the more you have individuals in that who are driving towards success and achievement, it breaks things down for the culture more broadly. And other things around here, you can imagine um, up that if you've got poor governance, it leads to greater inequality, which is interfering with wealth distribution and so forth. So we'll leave all those. But, so we might say, okay, so at an, at a nation what I want to do is live in one that's wealthy, with individualists, um, with more, with people with more um, feminine traits than, than masculine ones. And so their summary is a happy culture, is individualistic, wealthy, equal, is structured, has low uncertainty avoidance, and less masculinity. At the individual level, this is where you get that Simpson paradox idea happening that something that's true for the individual isn't necessarily true for the whole. You now find there is a relationship from wealth to subjective well-being, but it's actually quite weak at the individual level. The more wealthy an individual is, it's only, they're only slightly more happier. Slightly more happier, slightly happier, or slightly more happier. Look at what's happening with masculinity. At the national level, it wasn't good. At the individual level, it drives wealth. In fact, for every standard deviation, if that makes sense to you, in, in your, tr your scores on a masculinity scale, it translates into about 9,000 US per year. There you go, that's how much it's worth. Um, but what, what you can see is that the masculinity drives greater wealth, which is improving subjective well-being, but at the same time, the, more, the higher you are on those masculine traits, the more unhappy you will be. So there's a trade-off. You can be poor and happy, or you can have the masculine traits, which will make you more wealthy, but they'll make you unhappy. In fact, masculine traits make you less satisfied generally, even with the money that you earn. And individualism, which was good at the national level, is counterproductive at the individual at the individual level. The more of an individualistic person you are, the less happy you are going to be. And so you can see that's why it's important that you've got the right framework or got the right frame of reference to be interpreting these data because different data will have completely different look like completely different meanings if you aren't using the right frame of reference. So the individual summary is the values of socialness and enhanced interpersonal relationships predict well-being over and above salary. So happiness, the good life, it's not all about money. There are relationships and, um, and your social 
connectedness are important. The lower your individualism, the happier life you will have and the more you'll enjoy your co-workers. The stronger your achievement orientation, because that's what we're, why we're at uni, right? Achievement orientation, that's what we're all about. We come here, sorry, you might get more pay, but you'll be less satisfied, including less satisfaction with that pay that you earn. And efforts to increase income can deprive you of other subjective well-being enhancing experiences and relationships. So where does religion fit in all of this? Interestingly, there's something that's called the religion paradox that I want to spend a few minutes talking about now. Is, if you look at those who never attend religious services and say what percentage are very happy, you find about a quarter of them say they're very happy. Of those who regularly attend religious services, this is not specifically Christian, this is just any, um, any, any, any religious um, groupings, about half of them are very happy. Of those people who were not so religious and become more religious as they grow older, they get more satisfied in life. And those who get less religious become less satisfied. But the paradox is, people in wealthy nations tend to be leaving organised religion. As we look around Australia, that's what we see. And they say, this is a paradox. Why would you do that? If being involved makes you happy, why would you leave? So they've had a look at that. And one of the explanations is, it does have something to do, oh sorry, with something that's coming up in three slides time, but I forgot. So, but this is what happens at the individual level. What you can see, this is what I've just referred to, that the more you attend religious services, the happier you are. In fact, this is completely the other way around to what it was at the level of, um, of the group, of the nation where we started with. So the individual data is different when we're talking to individuals, talking about groups. Crime also goes the other way to what we saw previously at the individual level. The more you attend religious services, the less likely you are to be arrested. Probably because you're in a church service. So, um, um, and also, life, the more you attend religious services, the greater your life expectancy. So, that's, so the individual level is quite different to the group level. And it's because, if you think about it, there are different things happening at the individual and the group level. If we think for a moment about individualism, individualism for a nation might be good because it means people just take ownership and just get on and do things, whereas collectivism might be less helpful because people go, it's not my responsibility, it's yours. And they go, it's not my responsibility, it's yours. Somebody else will do it, they will do it, and it never gets done. So that's why individualism might work positively at a national level, at an individual level, it's, well, I'm going to do it, I don't care about you. So you have to understand what the context is, as the Simpsons paradox points us to. So this is where I thought I was up to. Economic success predicts less religion in a nation. So why is that? 
explanations that these authors want to look at. One is, is it that the more wealthy you are, the less inquiry you are about religion? Because you feel satisfied with what you've got, and you think, why would I, why would I bother inquiring? So the causal direction could go one way, or it could go the other, which is that religion itself provides meaning in life in the face of adversity, and so the less wealthy the nation, the more adversity there is, and so it drives people to search for meaning, and they look into religion. Could be either case, so they have a look at that. And what, what are their overall summaries? Firstly, they found across all of the nations that they surveyed, I think about 155 of them, most people in the world are religious. It's about 75%. That the people in nations or in states, so it works the same if you do um, states within the United States, you get the same pattern, is that the more difficult the life circumstances are, the more likely that state or that nation is to be religious. And so that's why at the group level you find the more religious the country, the higher the crime rate. Makes sense. And so the more prosperous nations, um, religious activity tends to be less prevalent. At the individual level, um, troubling circumstances do, do predict involvement in religion, but it's now a very, quite a weak relationship. At the individual level, subjective well-being negatively correlates with religiosity. So you might go, oh, so being religious makes you less satisfied. No. You have to take into account circumstances. If you, as soon as you control for difficult life circumstances, it actually flips over and the relationship is now positive. So that the more religious you are, the higher your subjective well-being. The complexity is because, as we've seen, that the, the more difficult your life circumstances, the more likely it is that you are to be religious. So you have to remove that effect. Being involved in religion is associated with greater purpose and meaning in life. And greater social engagement and social support. And what we know about these psychological characteristics is they're all associated with higher subjective well-being. Religion engages you with the things that make people happier at the individual level. And so their conclusions were, in less religious societies with relatively favourable circumstances, like ours, there's higher average subjective well-being is achieved by most people regardless of their religiosity. And so they say, lots of people just then say, well, why should I even ask these questions? Life's pretty good. On the other hand, in challenging societal circumstances and also challenging personal circumstances, Religiosity aids social support. It provides purpose and meaning in life, which we know are associated with greater happiness, satisfaction, and subjective well-being. Now, when it comes
comes to the causal direction, they say we can't know. We, we can't know which which is causing which. Part of it they've pointed to and they've said the fact that if you become more religious as you age, your satisfaction increases points to one one part of the causal story. But they say we're still unsure about that. So in summary, where does that leave us? With uncertainty. My answer to the good life cannot ultimately satisfy because hopefully you see it's complex. Things that will increase satisfaction at one level won't at another. Um, traits like masculinity will drive wealth up that will make you happier while at the same time um, separating you from people, um, making interpersonal relationships more difficult and will make subjective well-being go down. You can't have both. You do one, and it, the other one comes with it. So it has an inherent paradox to it. So there is complexity, and there's paradox. I thought you might leave you with uncertainty. You might know what to do. But what we can see is that religion provides purpose and meaning, and those are associated with greater life satisfaction and happiness. So what does that imply about religion? Does that mean religion is right? No, I don't think so. To me, all it says is it's worth investigating the claims of religion. And especially in our society, which is a relatively wealthy one, what the data say is you're, you're, you're not going to be inclined to, you're not going to be as inclined to look into the claims of religion because life's generally good. Were we living in a different country, you might have a different, um, um, a different perspective. But that doesn't mean the claims aren't worth investigating and shouldn't be investigating. investigating. And so I should I encourage you um, to do so. The fact that being involved in religion is associated with greater individual happiness isn't a reason for investigating it, but it is a reason for saying, I wonder why that's the case. And finally, C.S. Lewis, who I like, author of Language in the Wardrobe, said, actually, joy is the serious business of heaven. Where he was pointing to was saying, actually, our subjective well-being isn't tied up in the complexity and the paradoxes of this world. It's about heaven and joy is there. And so that's where the claims of Christianity point you towards. And some of what happens here is just an indication of that. And so that's where I'd like to leave it and open for questions. Oh, I've done what, as, as in tutorials, you, you, you know never to do, right? You go right up to the last minute so you don't get any questions. Give myself time for questions. So, <laughs> any questions? Religiosity, you know, have come out satisfied on the other side. 
this. Uh, so like when you just I, the difference between ha um, have the satisfied and haven't looked into religiosity or haven't questioned the claims of religion. But do we actually have any evidence that they haven't questioned religion and just decided that it's not for them or that they're atheists? No, that's no, but that's true. It's yeah. what the data are saying is that in wealthy nations, whether you're religious or not, has little to do with how happy you are. Okay. If you're in a nation that has less wealth and um, more problems, if you're religious, you're more likely to be happy. Any Yeah, well, I think um, that's, that's probably why you should come to talks at CBU every week, because there's a lot in that. Um, but I mean, there are small examples like where Jesus talked about wealthy people, saying it's harder for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven than um, it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Um, where he's and so that seems to be consistent with what um, these data seem to be showing that it's um, that looking around your general satisfaction is independent of that or if we turn it around to C.S. Lewis again he was saying that um, that God whispers to us in our pleasures and screams to us in um, our pain or something like that. Where when we're suffering, it's like, like I'm speaking to you. Um, and that seems, yeah, that seems to be consistent. There is an association, but as I say, we don't know the cause of the reaction. Yeah. I'm just uh, The, um, so, uh, um, yes, is, is the answer. I mean, in the area that I'm familiar with, which is in um, suicide, that's one of the, there's, there are strong relationships there that um, individuals who are religious are often less likely to um, try to kill themselves using suicide because they'll say it's inconsistent with the belief structure that I have. And so you will find that there are aspects around religion which um, are beneficial. There are other aspects where you find groups um, find um, greater guilt as well at, um, at times. So sometimes people will be, will be more troubled around guilt um, if they are religious. Yes? No, I'm not 
are not aware. I mean, certainly that there are, I'm not aware about research with, um, with UWA, but certainly work is associated with greater satisfaction. People who are unemployed are less happy than those who are employed. There seems to be something about being engaged in employment or activity, not necessarily paid employment, but engaged in productive activity, which just sits well with us. We, we feel happier, we feel engaged. Um, and you can get um, yeah, the predictions um, over time as well that there are increases with engagement in work and um, satisfaction. The wrinkle to that is what happens with retirement, which apparently shows a continued increase in satisfaction. So even though you stop working, you continue being happy. So that's something to look forward to. <laughs> Massive increase in happiness. 
The idea of guilt is an interesting one um, since religion brings along with guilt with it. I mean, and you can could sometimes see that the prospect of escaping from religion brings a temporary freedom from guilt because that only applies when you've got a standard which you're applying to yourself and you realise that you failed to meet that standard. And that is one of the things, certainly about Christianity, brings with it. Christianity talks about that that God has made us and wants to have a relationship with us. And so the question is, are you going to respond and have a relationship with him? And if you don't, then you aren't meeting you aren't meeting the standard that he set. So that comes automatically with guilt. Turning around and saying, yes, I actually want to have a relationship with you can um, remove um, can remove that guilt. And when you're in a relationship and you don't live the way you should or know you should, then you um, feel, then you're more likely um, to um, feel guilty. And that, it's not that being good makes you a Christian, but it's when you're a Christian and you want to live in a way that's consistent with God, just, just, as, um, just as the same as when you are married. That being faithful to that person won't make you married, but being married is how, sorry, being faithful is how you live when you are married. And so, so that there is a complex relationship between religion, um, religion and guilt. Uh, well, can we say a big thank you to Andrew for coming?